What's going on, everybody? This is the Dirt Bike Channel Podcast. This is Kyle Brotherson. Hey, I'm going to bring on a special guest. I'm going to bring on uh, Ben Burr. He's the executive director of Blue Ribbon Coalition. These guys do a ton of great work for us in the dirt bike world and in the OHV, that's off-highway uh, vehicle uh, use across the nation. These guys are one of the front lines of defense from the different groups that are trying to uh, kind of remove us from the equation and take us off of these public lands. Um, and we've got an interesting topic today because even if you are not in a state that has public lands, the initiatives that we're going to talk about today are actually do affect you. They affect everybody across the nation. Essentially, we're going to be talking about uh, FLIPMA, which is the FLPMA. I'll let Ben kind of describe what that is. But uh, they are looking to, it's part of the, it's part of a proposal from the BLM where they're maybe going to be trying to sell conservation leases to the highest bidder, maybe with like 10-year contracts. That sounds super scary to me uh, because now we're injecting money into this thing where possibly like interest groups from even outside the country could come in and weaken not only our position as OHV users, but weaken the economies in these areas. I mean, it could be like even a, a, like a national security, like a security I- issue. So in this podcast, Ben and I are going to talk through this. Um, we're going to come up with, he has three different ways uh, that you can help, which we'll go into um, as uh, you know, members of our community. And also you can sign up to be a member of the Blue, Rib- Blue Ribbon Coalition. Uh, I've been a member for, I don't even know how many years and uh, they're doing really great work for us. So Uh, Without further ado, I'm going to bring Ben on here, and we're going to kind of chat about this stuff. Oh, if you want to support what we're doing with Dirtbike Channel, the best way you can do that, one of the best ways you can do that is use my links to Rocky Mountain ATV. So I'll have that down in the show notes. Uh, When you're going to buy your parts or gear, uh, you can just click on my links. You can also find my links over at dirtbikechannel.com. There's a link up there that says like shop Rocky Mountain ATV. So you go to my website, and then you click shop Rocky Mountain ATV. After you click on that link, you can buy anything they sell anything they sell and it helps to support what we're doing here and also if you're listening to this podcast in the month of june i'm giving away two dirt bikes so when you're over there at dirtbikechannel.com you can also get entered to win both of those motorcycles uh, there's a, a ktm 300 xcw and also a tm en 300 that's another fuel injected two-stroke so you can check out all that information over at dirtbikechannel.com and as soon as you get done with that then go over to sharetrails.org and check out some of this information that we'll be talking about with uh, Ben Burr, the executive director of Blue Ribbon Coalition. So we're going to bring him on right now. Well, I've got uh, Ben Burr. He's the executive director uh, for Blue Ribbon Coalition. Uh, He's been on the podcast a couple of times, and uh, we're glad to have him back. So how you doing, Ben? I'm doing really good, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing well. I've got some water here. I've got some coffee here. Um, I'm sitting in my office, so... Sun is shining outside. It could be a lot worse. Have you been out riding much this year or are you waiting for the runoff to finally stop? I've been riding a little bit. You know, I rode once this week, but uh, yeah, with the winter that we had in Utah, I mean, it was, it was epic. I mean, we had the best snow year we've ever had on record for Utah, which is great because I think, I don't know, like 20 of the last 25 years have been drought. So that's good, but it's kind of pushed our riding season back a little bit. Maybe I don't even, maybe like six weeks kind of here in Utah as yeah, far as for dirt right. biking, it feels like. So 
what I'm seeing uh, the biggest discussion item is on all the dirt bike groups on Facebook is when are our trails ever going to open? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> And there's a lot of groups that are in different areas that are going out and cutting out logs and cutting things out. And that's something that I try to do every time. Like I, I'll carry like a handsaw with me. Um, a lot of times in the beginning of the year, you need to kind of carry chainsaws. I don't have a chainsaw for my bike, uh, but I'll go out there with other groups that are carrying saws and, and I will carry a handsaw and I'll go out and do some trail maintenance. It's been interesting because like with the amount of snow that we had in, in addition to just big trees falling down, a lot of branches that were never really in our, you know, in the way those branches kind of got pushed down because of the extra snowfall. And so there's a lot of like, quote, pruning that I've been doing when I've been out because these branches, they're not like logs in the way these branches have been pushed down and now they're like right at the level of your chest or your head or whatever. And so I've been cutting a lot of that out as I've been, you know, getting out on the trails, but yeah. It's, uh, I think all the trail users appreciate the work that the dirt bike community does. I know that you guys kind of, it's one of these secret things that goes unnoticed. I think people, hikers and other users go use trails and they're all nice and clear and they think it just magically happens. It's usually the dirt bikers are the ones who get out there and do it for whatever reason. You guys have taken that up and do a great job with it. So uh, thanks for maintaining our trails. Yeah. And there are a lot of good good uh volunteer groups and guys that are doing <clears throat> doing a lot of that um i wish more of the hikers took a little bit more initiative for that this isn't probably the right podcast to talk about that because none of them are probably going to be listening to this but within the dirt bike community if you are doing any of that work thank you so much and uh, and continue to do it one of the things i like to do when i meet hikers on the trail i don't do it with every hiker i meet but a lot of times i will stop and just engage with them for just a second and ask them if they've seen any issues that we need to take care of. And they're like, oh, do you work for the forest service? And I'm like, no, I just, I'm just a, you know, a regular citizen, but we want to make sure that these trails stay open and it takes work. And so did you see any logs? Did you, did you see any, you know, places that need attention? And you can, and they're kind of like, Oh my goodness. Like these guys are actually helping because so often they think that a lot of these motorized groups, whether it's me or even a mountain biker, they sometimes they look at us and they think we're part of the problem. And what I want to do is change the narrative and be like, no, we're actually part of the solution because we're out here doing this work um, and, and you're not. I don't say that to them. <laughs> I'm like, where's your saw? Where's, you know, where's your pickaxe? You don't have it. Um, but anyway, it's, it's good to yeah. just get out there and kind of do everyone do their part. Um, to kind yeah, of keep these things open. Way to ease into that conversation and make sure we're avoiding user conflict by educating other users about the value we all bring to the system. So Yeah, yeah. And I I constantly say we all need, as far as in the OHV community, we all need to band together um, because we have a bigger fight. If we're fighting amongst ourselves, and we've talked about this before, Ben, if we're fighting amongst ourselves in the motorized you know, user groups with side-by-sides or dirt bikes or even, you know, mountain bikes. If we're fighting within ourselves, we're losing big time to some of these bigger environmentalist groups, which I think is kind of what we're going to be talking a little bit about today. Um, one of the newer yeah. initiatives and things that Blue Ribbon Coalition is is working on, um, I think the tagline is withdraw the rule, right? One of the things that you're working on now with, with FLIPMA, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Flipma. That's a, maybe <laughs> some of your users will know about Flipma, but that's 
for whatever reason, when they make laws in Congress, sometimes they get really creative with coming up with fun acronyms for call it, naming the law. Sometimes they come up with something like FLIPMA, <laughs> which stands for the Federal Land Policy Management Act. F-L-P-M-A. See, I hadn't heard about it until about 10 minutes ago when you were talking to me. And I'm like, I thought you were joking when you said FLIPMA. Like FLIPMA. And, and you've probably had a good me. life until now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I have I have and now I'm now I'm starting to wonder I don't know now you've like crossed the threshold into being a nerd and there's no going back uh, my um, this, my this girl is, my girlfriend says I was I was always a nerd so we'll just put that one out there oh well I've got proof <laughs> okay um so this law is basically the law that governs how public land gets managed by agencies. And it's where if you've heard the term multiple use, which is most of our public land is managed under multiple use. So that's why you'll see cows sometimes when you're out riding around on trails. Um, there's often active mining claims. You have a lot of recreation use happens on public land. I and mean, we're seeing a lot of alternative energy like solar and wind projects being proposed on public land. It's because it is supposed to be managed for all kinds of, of different uses. And one this thing that we're really concerned about right now is that the Biden administration has released a proposed rule. And so when an agency like the BLM releases a rule, usually what they're doing is they're looking at their laws and saying, the law is telling us we have to operate a grazing program on public land. And it's giving us some guidelines of how to do it. And we're going to fill in the gaps with these rules just to kind of help our people know what to do. What they've done here is basically said we've flipma says in like one sentence that we need to take uh that we need to manage public land for conservation and the blm does do a lot of put a lot of effort into making sure conservation is prioritized on public land there are probably a dozen laws like the endangered species act or the clean water act or the clean air act or the archaeological resources protection act there's the national environmental protection act there's there's a lot of these that the BLM has to follow to make sure they're not damaging the environment on public land. But what they've done is looked at FLIPMA and said, we think that this law gives us the authority to start creating and selling conservation leases, which is kind of like a conservation easement, which means a, an environmental group or a conservation group could show up design a conservation lease with the BLM, pay the BLM. So this is an iteration of selling our public land off to a special interest group. And then that group would manage the land for conservation purposes. And nowhere in FLIPMA does it really talk about anything like a conservation lease. And so they're really just making this up out of nowhere in, in a lot of regards because Congress has given them a lot of guidance on the ways they can prioritize conservation. And they've decided they want this new one. And it it's odd, but at the same time, it's really threatening because if you're one of these other public land users, if you're a dirt bike rider, for example, or a rancher or a mining claim owner, if you want to go ride off-roading on full-wheel drive trails, if you're a horseback rider, if you're a backcountry pilot, if you're a hiker, if you're dispersed camping out of your vehicle or your car, all those uses we have seen environmental groups use all the tools at their disposal to try and eliminate and restrict those uses. And so it's not just entirely possible, but incredibly likely 
that this new authority that they're trying to create through this rule will lead to a lot of restrictions and loss of access to public land for all user groups across the board. It's crazy. What what are the what are these leases like when we say that they're buying these leases? Like do we have any idea how much they're going to be? Is this like possibly a money grab too for the BLM where they could make a bunch of revenue on this or do we have any idea what these leases uh, would look like from a monetary um, standpoint? I believe it will be. Um they're they're very they're being very vague about it, which is another problem with this. It's another problem with doing what these, these administrative rulemakings where you don't have any law from Congress to tell you what to do. And so you just make it up. I mean, first of all, the Supreme court is striking down things like this left and right right now. They don't like the administrative agencies doing this. Um, but they haven't really said what the costs will be and whatnot. And if you look at how they've managed some of these things in the past, I mean, you hear a lot of complaints that the grazing leases don't really bring in a lot of revenue for the BLM. And if you talk to the ranchers, they'll say, well, I shouldn't have to really pay a lease anyway. I own this grazing permit from generations ago. And the fact they've built this grazing permit scheme on top of what they perceive to be a property, right? They feel like they own the grass on public land. They don't own the surface. They don't actually own the land itself. But the grass that their cows eat, they own that. And it's their permit from the Taylor Grazing Act back in the day, in the 1800s and up to the 1930s, really did give them that forage right. And so that's that's not like we don't need to, be, to debate that here. But there, sometimes the BLM gets so, a little bit of money for things. Sometimes they get a lot. Like with mineral leases and royalties, you'll see those kind of come in in perpetuity once a well or a lease starts producing um would on the mineral side or the oil and gas side and so it's it remains to be seen what they'll charge but it is definitely something that will bring money to the table to try and influence this and it also raises another constitutional problem is that congress is our branch of government that has the power of the purse which means the power to raise revenue for the federal government and determine how it gets spent uh, the director of the Bureau of Land Management does not have that power. So to the extent that this FLIPMA does not authorize this, it doesn't ever contemplate the idea of a conservation lease and something where money is being exchanged in order to have access to help the BLM manage the land for conservation reasons. And so they're getting into a separation of powers problem here as well, where they're trying to do something that really is the job of Congress. And so... And and for good reason, Congress should be doing that. Otherwise, we would see our whole administrative state captured by uh, moneyed special interests that just want to buy policy outcomes on our public land system. And that's likely what will happen here. That doesn't sound good. None of that sounds good. Yeah, I don't like our like what the way this will probably lurk, work in practice is you'll see a group that has that normally is in court suing the BLM to try to get policy outcomes that they want. Uh, they will now just come buy leases. And so you could see there's certainly some groups out there that would probably love to own a conservation lease on all of the areas that have our most popular trails around Moab, for instance. And then they would use their position as a leaseholder to restrict access. And they would use, they would start to argue that all of the other uses happening on that land are preventing them from adhering to the terms and conditions of their lease and they would use that as a tool 
to close trails and restrict access. And I think it just will be really bad news for everyone who who cares about the multiple use way that the BLM is managed now. I think this will, they're calling it multiple use, but I think the conservation will become the dominant use uh, if something like this goes into effect. What do you think the main reason is that the BLM is proposing this? I mean, are they trying to just um, offload some of their responsibilities or is it, or is it a, the money thing we talked about? I mean, I'm trying to figure out why they would, seems like this might be watering down what their power is and what their reach is. It's almost like it's off. Hey, I've got this, you know, they're, it's almost like they're paying somebody to take some of the responsibilities off their hands. Or am I looking at that in the wrong way? Um, it, it definitely, we definitely do hear a lot that the BLM does not have the resources to do the job it's mandated to do. And there is some truth to that. It's, and I don't, know that there's an organization on this planet that has the resources to manage 240 million acres of land i have three acres of land and it's a lot of work and so a lot of our land goes unmanaged there's a lot of the rules and things that it's almost impossible to enforce and so there is a limitation of resources here and but i think the purpose for this is actually probably just brazenly political uh, this idea feels and looks and smells a lot like the master's thesis that the current BLM director published when she was in college. Um, and so I think it's she got into power and now she wants to see if she can put it into effect, even though she doesn't really have any congressional mandate to do it. And so I think it's just the Biden administration trying to push through something that they think will help. I think if you've heard of the 30 by 30 agenda, um, this was a marketing campaign started by a lot of the conservation organizations where they want to protect is the word they use 30% of our nation's lands and waters by 2030. And by, by protect, they mean pretty much lock up and prevent other users from using it. There's no law that says, Hey, go do this 30 by 30 thing. Mm -hmm. But the first day in office, president Biden came in and said, we're doing this 30 by 30 thing through an executive order. And <clears throat> since they did that, all of us who've been paying attention to this are like, well, how are they going to do this? They don't have a law that tells them any how they're supposed to do it. They'll probably try and find some creative administrative paths for accomplishing this. Yeah, I, there's definitely something like designating a national monument would be a tool they would use. And they have um, this rule is definitely an answer to that question of how are they going to do this 30 by 30 thing where they don't really have any statutory basis for it. Mm. So uh, what what can we do about it? And what what's Blue Ribbon Coalition? What's kind of the, the game plan? Yeah, this is why I wanted to, that's why I reached out to you to say this is a good topic for a show is because we definitely need your the help of your listeners. We have three actions that we're asking people to take. The first one is we have, if you go to withdrawtherule.com, that will go to our home base page for this where we have these actions you can take. The first one is, you can contact the BLM. This rule is open for public comment until June 20th. I think we have about 10 days left to 11 days to get that done. And we've we've gotten about 1,500 comments in is what we're looking at right now. But over 80,000 have already been submitted. And we can be confident in knowing that a big chunk of those are probably these environmental groups that want to see this go into effect. And so our users, the motorized recreation users and 
um, all these other groups need to get very aggressive in making sure the BLM's hearing from us on an individual level. We have a form that helps you do that. It goes directly to the BLM. Uh, you can we have form language there that you can use. We always encourage everybody to actually personalize that. Is makes it a stronger comment. But if you're going to choose between doing nothing and taking 30 seconds to send in this form, at least go add your name to the list and send in this form. Okay. Uh, the second thing is this started getting the attention of Congress once us and other groups started getting really um, vocal about it. And so there's been a bill introduced in the Senate by Senator Barrasso, and both Utah senators have signed on. I don't know if your audience, I, th- I get your audience is national. I mean, we have a list on our um our website that tells who's currently signed on to the legislation, both in the Senate and then in the House. We have Representative Curtis from Utah introduced the bill and the sponsor list is growing there every week. We're getting new sponsors added on. And this bill is very simple. Anyone in the public could read it and understand it. It's one of those that's a paragraph long and it basically just tells the BLM they shouldn't move forward with this rule. They should withdraw it and stop doing any work to implement it or put it into effect. And so you, we need you to contact your member of Congress. Again, we have a form that you can send an email. You, If you like calling them, you can look up their phone numbers and call them. But we are seeing that because it's a pretty simple bill, it's not really politically risky for a lot of members of Congress to just sign on to it. It's just one of those, like when I was working in Congress, this would be one that would fly under the radar unless your constituents called you about it. If especially if you're not in one of the Western states, you might not think about it. But I think if we had people all over the country calling their representatives, if they got a handful of calls about this one, they'd be like, oh, that's easy. We can go put it on. If we have people that care about it, there's nothing, there's no political risk to it if you're opposed to an expansive administrative state that's abusing its authority, regardless of whether you are interested in what the BLM itself is doing. This is bigger problems. Okay. And so there's that you'll see on our withdrawtherule.com, there is a place where you can go contact Congress and do what you need to do there. The third thing is if you are part of a club or organization or you're involved in a business that has uh, dealings with the public land system in any way, we wrote a joint letter that we want everybody to sign. And what we did when we looked at this is we said, we have a lot of divergent user groups have different interests. The dirt bike riders probably would write different things in their letters or their comments than what a cattle rancher might write. But we identified four principles that we think unite everybody. And this is just a joint letter that we want to get hundreds and hundreds of people signed onto it that also represent hundreds or thousands of people so that this looks like this really good collective voice coming together saying we do not want this and we're using this letter to when we call members of congress and their staff to say this is how many people are getting behind us on this and so if you're part of an organization or group we want you to get your group to add their name to this letter and there's a form where you do that it's just like a name and email address and the name of the club or organization and every week we'll update that with who has signed on we're over 200 now have done that. So that's representing probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people already on this letter. And, and so again, that's an easy thing. And that one doesn't have a deadline where the BLM's deadline is the 20th for the rule. That's they're following an administrative process there. This letter, we're using it as 
kind of a tool to influence the BLM, but we're also using it as a tool to influence Congress. And Congress doesn't have deadlines. They when they they want to pass this bill, they will. If it gets enough support, they'll put it into something and pass it. And so we need to keep up the heat with the members of Congress. And this letter and then those personal calls to Congress are the ways that we can keep doing that even after the June 20th deadline. And so this is one of those actions that BRC gets involved with where it's going to be an ongoing thing for months to until we see what the BLM decides to do after the public comment period. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at it here on your website right now, um, sharetrails.org forward slash withdraw dash the dash rule. Um, yep. Right here. And there's those, there's those links to, to do that. I'm looking at the the letter as well here, the mm-hmm. word, which is cool. Yeah. And we can go over those four principles really quick. Cause they're kind of cool. Uh, like it helps you see if this is something your club or whatever you're a member of would want to join it. I mean, the first one is we say that BLM doesn't have a, th- Authority to do this is what I've already been talking about. There isn't really language in FLIPMA where they say, hey, you guys need to go create this conservation lease program. If there was, they would have done it back in 1976 when the law was yeah. passed. It, it's not common that authorities are hiding there in a statute for 50 years and then you f- and finally the right bureaucrat discovers them and puts them into place. If that's happening, if you're finding hidden statutory authority 50 years after a law has gone into effect, you're probably actually abusing your power. Yeah. And so that's our first big concern. And we think everyone should be united about that. The second one is that it won't work. Um, I've actually reviewed a lot of BLM records and files in my time. And I've actually come into instances where I've seen conservation groups enter into a memorandum of understanding. It's not quite as binding as a lease agreement would be. But it's the same idea as let us help you manage this and do some conservation projects on public land and help you manage this towards a conservation objective that we want. And they didn't fulfill one bullet point of their memorandum of understanding on the ground. And so it was kind of this high minded thing they went into at the time, but then they didn't do any of it. And And then there's no enforceability, but here they are draining the agency of its resources, making them think something's getting done and it's not. And and we asked the Forest Service, it was the Forest Service in this case, can you enforce this or cancel it? And the top levels of the national office in D.C. told us no, that they wouldn't. And so I'm like, okay. Uh, and so that's my other concern is even if they enter into really strong binding contracts, because these are political relationships first and foremost, before they are financial or contractual, uh, you might see the agencies just look the other way when it's their political friends. And so I don't think they'll work. It, the rule is unnecessary. I have a whole list in the letter of all the environmental laws that exist on the books right now to protect our public land and make sure that we're not damaging the environment. And we participate in over 300 actions a year with federal agencies at Blue Ribbon Coalition to influence them and keep them open for recreation. Whatever decision they're making, we want we do not want recreation interests to be harmed and that you're we, don't, we want to keep your access open. And the bulk of that work, when you read these plans they introduce, like the Moab travel plan we've talked about in the past, and you get this 300 page document of all the analysis they're doing of the trail system around Moab. of that is just talking about how 
that trail system will or won't cause the environmental impacts that they're required to analyze under these dozens of laws. And so it's not necessary to go and add one more tool for conservation when there's really powerful laws that already mandate that conservation happens on public land. Yeah, I'm just looking at the, uh, <clears throat> on that letter, you've got the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978, Archaeological Resources Protection Act of 1979, Clean Air Act 1990, Clean Water Act of 1987, Endangered Species Act. It goes on and on and on. You've listed all of these different um, these different rules and statutes, there's you've listed probably fourteen of them here, of these major. And every single one of them gives standing to environmental groups to sue a federal agency if they don't like any decision they reach, and they do that all the time. That's why that's all they are is a bunch of lawyers suing agencies all the time. Is because they have so many laws that give them the pathway to do this, and it's a stupid system. It's a system we've got, but we definitely don't need any more tools in this toolbox this is like a tool belt that doesn't even stay on your waist anymore it's got so many tools in it yeah especially and, one where you can buy it it's going to the highest bidder that's the thing that kind of worries me is a lot of these environmental yeah. groups are so well organized and they have such good funding for whatever reason i'm not sure probably because they're not spending yeah. all their money on the side-by-sides and dirt bikes why <laughs> that's probably why they have so much money oh my gosh well and that brings up the fourth bullet point on my letter is we don't know where that money comes from. And there's no rules in place to, because the BLM is just making this up out of nowhere, they're not taking into consideration something like a geopolitical uh, risk. And it wouldn't be difficult at all for, let's say the example I like to use is, let's say the country of Brazil, there's some Brazilian companies who've actually monopolized our meat processing industry in the United States. And it's that's there's like two or three meat processors and they're Brazilian. And so they have a huge stake in our meat processing industry in North America. No pun intended. And, Did you just say a huge stake in our meat processing? Yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm clever with my words. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I digress. And, um, if they could fund groups that could use the conservation lease as a tool to complicate or destabilize the public land grazing industry, they could they could use that to strengthen their position in our markets. And why wouldn't they? If, if it gives you a more competitive position in the marketplace to go and wipe out a bunch of cattle ranchers in the West through conservation lease programs, uh, that's a great way to spend resources. We, if China doesn't want America to become independent of its lithium resources, if we're going to be making all these batteries for electric cars and whatnot, all you have to do is funnel money through shell companies to environmental groups. They can go buy conservation leases on all the areas that have rich lithium resources, and you've prevented America from ever becoming any real player in the lithium scene. Wow. And, and so there's no like, safeguards baked into this rule the blm doesn't have the expertise to analyze those dimensions of something like this this is why something that's this big and impactful for our system usually only comes into play when it passes along congress because congress does have the expertise that you it has to go through the whole body they have intelligence committees foreign relations committees commerce committees finance committees and the natural resources committee like And if all of those kind of pass off on something like this and scrutinize those things, they might put provisions in there that require 
foreign investment disclosures around the companies or the organizations that might want to do this. Um, but the BLM doesn't have any authority or wherewithal to even contemplate or understand any of that, let alone create policy around it. And so in an environment where our supply chains are falling apart, where China or Russia or any of these countries aren't going to choose to get into direct military conflict with the United States, what they still might and will do is undermine our domestic economy um, through things like this. And and so it's the that whole concern you raised that this is a way to bring money into this game and let the money pick who wins is bad news, especially when we don't know where the money's coming from and what its purposes are there are for being there in the first place. Yeah. And if you're one of these groups receiving it, it's like, Hey, give it to us. Like there aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of guardrails around this in there. I mean, if you wanted, if a foreign interest wanted to invest in a defense industry like Raytheon, if, if the Chinese firm wanted to buy out Raytheon, there's all kinds of laws that would kick in and say, no, you're not buying something that's critical to our defense industry and what like and so it's not impossible to have safeguards built around a policy like this the blm is not going to create this they just can't they don't know how they don't have anybody on their staff that's going to scrutinize this at at that level and so that for those reasons i mean it's a risk to our national security i think to put this rule into effect with this blunt kind of haphazard way they're doing it, it and that i also think is unconstitutional um uh, for the, for all these reasons we designed our government the way we did is to prevent the things i just described from happening and they're yeah. just throwing caution and saying we're going to do this anyway um and so that's the four principles in the letter and i so i think most groups organizations I mean, we've got 200 to sign on most people look at it and say hey yeah we want to be on board i think the only reason we don't have more signatories is because people just haven't heard about it and so that's why i wanted to that's why i'm here with you spreading the word because i think the more people hear about it the more people will be like yeah this makes sense ben's on to something blue ribbon coalition's on to something we should support them yeah i'm signing this thing now as we talk about it and is it hard it, no, it's easy. I mean, I'm just looking, there's, you've got like a PDF image of this thing here and I've been looking at it the entire time we've been talking and now I'm just going to put in my organization name and email. So yeah, pretty simple. Yeah. So it's like three or four fields to fill in. And we, I mean, we want your email so we can update you as things happen, as we get new members of Congress I and mean, we want to help you keep track of what's going on here on this. Um, so you can communicate it back to your folks and, but yeah, other than that, I mean, it's, those are the three actions. And so, if, and I think if all our users actually showed up and did it, we would be the loudest voice on this issue. But a lot of times these are the things we often ignore. The other side that really wants this to go into effect doesn't, it's kind of more like a church for them. For us, it's our thing we do to get away from church and from <laughs> politics and from all these other things. Uh, but if you could take a few minutes to, add your voice to this. I think it, we need to do that or else it could be a big risk. And one of the, like we watch a lot of things that could close recreation access on public land. Like I said, we've been involved in 300 actions in the last year. This is one of the biggest. Yeah. This will affect everybody. 
And we saw everybody get fired up around a land swap in Sand Hollow, for example. And that was a, I mean, that could have impacted a few really important trails in Sand Hollow. And this will impact everything everywhere. It's that times a million. And so you have to get involved on these big ones. You just have to, or else we're going to lose a lot. It'll, it'll be weaponized against us for sure. Yeah. It seems like such a bad deal. Like they're out of, like the BLM is out of their depth on that one. Like they didn't think that through um, what the implications of that could be. Cause like we talked about it, it isn't just like maybe some of these user groups could lose access to their favorite trails. It could be a national security thing where these, you know, shell companies or, or even just environmental groups could be bought out, essentially bought out by foreign actors uh, to uh, weaken our position, weaken our economy and things like that. So it's, it's a crazy world that we live in. And it's funny that they, that the BLM didn't think that through before proposing that. But I, I mean, at the same time, it's just, it's, I say BLM, <clears throat> it's highly likely it's just somebody at the, t- at the top or close to the top that, you know, isn't the smartest person in the world and isn't thinking about, you know, the long-term ramifications of this, uh, who's just kind of acting in, you know, it's their little pet pro- pet project or something. So, yeah, that's, that is kind of what I think is happening here. So they didn't look at all the dimensions. But I also think that those are the kinds of things that even if you live in a state that doesn't have a lot of BLM land, that foreign concern, the the foreign policy, the national security risk is something that gets Congress, members of Congress and senators fired up, even if they don't have an acre of BLM land in their state. Yeah, because a lot of in the current a lot of them don't. Go like ahead. if you're in the East, you wouldn't have any of this BLM land. It's mostly us just here in the West, right? That are ha- have a right. lot of this public yeah. land. But if, if you care about the viability of the meat and cattle industry in the United States and you're in Nebraska, you might not have a lot of BLM land in Nebraska, but this is a reason you should support this. If you're in the South or you're in the Northeast or you're in the, the East Coast, you don't want unfettered foreign influence into our markets through yeah. a rule like this that Congress hasn't built guardrails around. And I'm not, doesn't necessarily mean we have to be protectionist. It doesn't mean that we can't have foreign commerce exchanges with other countries and people from other places, but Congress has to design those rules to make them work. Otherwise there is a completely exposed risk there. And and, and so without those safeguards, this just seems like a disaster in waiting. Yeah. So let, let's recap. You said there are three actions that we can help with. Number one, I think you said was contacting the BLM before June 20th on their form. And I'm going to, I'm going to put in the show notes here, um, where they can do that on your website, sharecharles.org slash withdraw dash the dash rule. So I'll include that. What was the second thing that you mentioned? Um, Contacting your member of Congress to sign on to the bill that is, they're already introduced, so that we just need co-sponsors at this point. So they just need to hear from their constituents on this issue. And if and if they do, I think this is an easy one to, I worked in Congress. I know what happens when you start getting called from constituents around an issue like this, where there's a group out there driving action. 
sometimes if you're asking them to do something that's really far out of their political alignment or their bandwidth or their interest, you're not going to get them. But this is this bill is so simple. And even if you don't have BLM land, it if you still are concerned about an expansive administrative state making up rules without your authority and abusing its power at your expense as a member of Congress, you should still sign on to this bill. And it's a paragraph and it's and so we haven't had a lot of difficulty getting members to sign on to it once we educate them. And so we call their offices. We ask to talk to their staff that's working on natural resource issues. We explain this bill and the support it already has. We explain about this letter that we have hundreds of people signing on to with uh, all these groups that represent people in their district. Because at this point, with 200 groups all over the nation, we pretty much have that. They sign on. And so they just need to hear from me. Um, if, and we'll do a lot of that. We can do some of that work ourselves, but they definitely need to hear from their, their own constituents as well. And then the third thing is if you're in a group or a club or anything like that, add them to our letter. And we'd love to see that letter get hundreds, if not thousands of people signed onto it so that we can show everybody who's a decision maker on this, that we have a strong unified voice in, of opposition. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to include all of these links here on your website. I'll put it in the show notes. And then when I post this to Facebook too, I'll include all these different, these different links where people can just go. I appreciate you at Blue Ribbon Coalition doing a lot of, you know, groundwork on this. It feels like um, you guys are one of the first lines of defense in a lot of different areas um, of public land, you know, even, even just, even on lakes and things like uh, a lot of people here in the Southwest, Utah, Arizona, California, we love Lake Powell. And I've seen that you've been doing a lot of different things uh, with, with in those areas as well, you know? And so it's, it's nice to know that there's a, an organization that is kind of just trying to stay on the forefront of some of these issues. Um, so thank you for the good work that you're doing there. Yeah, you're right. No, we did. So last fall we started a, it's kind of like a year ago, spring and into the fall, we built a movement that we called Phil Lake Powell. Yeah. And I just want to point out that it worked. Yeah. It's going right back up. <laughs> it's well, <laughs> yes, it yeah, and yeah, the the weather had something to do with that too, but I know <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but what we did do is we we like the Bureau of Reclamation after we went through those years where we had some very significant um low water years and they started to realize that their drought contingency plans weren't going to give them the coverage they needed to do what they needed to do to stabilize and maintain both Lake Powell and Lake Mead and the other reservoirs in the system. And so with our Phil Lake Powell project, we actually were most of the effort of that is influencing the Bureau of Reclamation as they navigate this process of how do we develop a more reasonable plan to deal with the reality of what we're really facing. Yeah. And we got thousands and thousands of Lake Powell users to participate in that and to add a voice of the recreation users on the lake um, to have that be part of this plan they're developing. Because what we found in the past was we went and looked at how many people had submitted comments on the last plan that wasn't working. And there was a bunch of, there was a handful of comments from like the Water Conservancy District or the state water managers of the states in the Colorado River Basin. There was one comment from a member of the public. Wow. Total. <laughs> and, 
Like uh, clearly they weren't listening to us because we weren't telling them what we want. And so we mobilized that whole Lake Powell community and we uh, branched out into Lake Mead and some of the other lakes as well. We're monitoring the water management policies across that river basin and getting a pretty good handle on how the water management works because that's a huge part of our recreation economy as well. Yeah. Like we started looking numbers and lake powell the national park service believes lake powell generates 500 million dollars of economic activity just around page and the lake yeah that doesn't count a single boat sale in salt lake city yeah i don't i don't doubt that at all a couple years ago um and i wish i could find this article again i it's somewhat how it came across my news feed this two years ago and they were talking about uh, John Baden Powell, the guy who the, the lake is named after. He goes and does this expedition uh, looking at the uh, Colorado River system back in like 1890s, somewhere in there. And so he kind of, he, yeah. he, he, he takes this expedition and he maps out like much of this Colorado River system. And he's from the East Coast or somewhere. And uh, he does this thing. And then they have this, and I'm butchering some of this, but they have this like water plan that happens in Southern California. And this is right, right around the turn of the century, 1900. He gets invited to go down to this thing and, and kind of comment on what had happened. And he, so he takes, you know, the train and he goes all the way to, I think it was held in LA or something like right around 1900. He goes down there and he reviews their water plan and how many people they were projecting to have come into the Southern California area and what the water was going to look like. And he told them that he told them essentially that their plan was going to create water problems for a hundred years. And that would, it would ultimately fail because he said that they didn't have nearly enough water for what they were projecting. And if you think about that, you're like, how prophetic was that? Here's a dude who had seen the Missouri river and seen the Mississippi river and seen all these huge you know, rivers, every mile of the Colorado almost. Right. And then he maps the Colorado. And basically what he said was the Colorado river is like a trickle compared to the rivers that we have in the East. And you guys are making like a population plan based off of numbers that are like the Missouri river. And the Colorado river is like one tenth of that is basically what he was saying. And he's like, you are going to create water wars for a hundred years and it will ultimately fail. And I was like, holy crap. And the, the only reason it hasn't failed before now is because is because of the whole like building these reservoirs like Lake Powell, Lake Mead and all the different or all the different dams that they created on that Colorado River system, which I don't think he envisioned. And so they kind of like put stop gaps in there, no pun intended, by making these reservoirs. But ultimately, he was right. There isn't enough water in the West, um, and the Colorado River isn't big enough. There's not enough water to support all of the, the uses that we have. And But these reservoirs have been amazing to kind of just like prolong. It's almost like delaying the inevitable is the way I see it. It's just like the amount of people that we have in Phoenix and Los Angeles, I mean, yeah, Los Angeles and, and uh, Las Vegas and all this stuff, these reservoirs have kind of made it, made, make it made us able to kind of kick the can down the road, but eventually there isn't enough water in the West to sustain the amount of people that are coming in. So, yeah, it's, and there's a, there's agricultural uses, there's industrial uses, there's the municipal and residential uses and you balance all of that. And we definitely are in, 
a position where you either have to stop growing or you have to engineer uh, an infrastructure for the 21st century. And we're having serious, I mean, you watch the biggest news out of the Ukraine war this week was that one of their major dams down in the south had been destroyed probably through an act of sabotage of some kind it, I mean, the stories about that are interesting and they're they're characterizing it as like an act of mass destruction warfare to have removed a dam that provides the storage of water for agricultural and city use um helps them manage their natural resources it generates power it does all these things and but we have political movements in the united states that are taken very seriously that are their whole purpose is to get us to remove all of our dams. Yeah. And I, I'm just like, so, how are you going to, how are you going to feed, you know, half the nation? And, and you're asked if you were saying, let's drain Lake Powell, let's drain Lake Mead 30, I don't know, 25, 30 million people would have to move out of Southern California because they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't have the water and they wouldn't have the food. Yeah. So, and so it's a, it's like it's kind of fascinating to me that that even gets any traction and then it's not characterized for what it is i mean it's really would be considered an act of war to get that policy outcome if it was done <laughs> through violent force but because we choose to do it because we've built a really slick marketing campaign around it it just is too critical of a resource i think rather than pursue that path we need to be asking different questions of how do we conserve more? How do we get more out of less is I think the first question everybody's asking in all these states. And the next one is, can we, I, I call it printing more water. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can do it with desalination. It, it's expensive. It's a lot of energy and effort and money to desalinate the water and to move it where it needs to be. But that's why Phoenix exists. They did ex they did spend $60 billion to build the Central Arizona Project back in the day, in the mid-20th century. And that was a lot of money at the time. It's a lot of money today. But the economy of Phoenix today is $500 billion. And so can, a, can a, the economy of a city that's $500 billion absorb the cost of water infrastructure that's $60 billion up front and then a management cost ongoing? It can. That is not a make or break cost. It's inconvenient. You might not have to deal with that cost if you live somewhere in the Mississippi River Basin. You have other problems out there. But that's if you live in Phoenix, that's part of the cost of living in Phoenix if you want to have a modern lifestyle. And so to bring additional systems on board, I mean, there's plans looking at whether we can desalinate water to bring it into the system and it's possible. It's technically possible. It's financially possible. We desalinate enough water on the planet right now to fill Lake Powell every year. Wow. It's the biggest roadblock is the environmental reasons. Like Phoenix and Arizona, they want to build a desalination plant down in Mexico and pipe it up to their water infrastructure. So Phoenix has a reliable, guaranteed source of water because right now they're the first ones to get cut off under the current system. Yeah. And when they released their plan of this is what we're looking at, and we have a billion dollars down payment to start, all the news articles was the Sierra Club saying, you can't do this. You can't build a water pipeline. There's a national monument down there along the border of Arizona and Mexico. You can't build a water pipeline across a national monument. 
Let's look for and solutions. I'm like, <laughs> Let's look for on. solutions. <laughs> like, okay, then you've got all these people that are either going to, you know, die of dehydration or they have to move. There's got to so be some. depopulate Phoenix because we won't build a pipe of water across the desert. Yeah. And yeah. nobody's looking at them in the eye and saying, that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. Yeah. We want to be able thanks to have for water. Opinion. Like it's water. What, like what's envisioned to me, the biggest natural catastrophe you can, that that water pipeline fails. What is it? Like somebody sabotages it. It breaks. It starts like spilling water all over the desert for a few hours until you shut it off. <laughs> and maybe we have to like bulldoze a right of way through the, national monument a 10-foot like disturbance corridor so that phoenix can have a million acre feet of water a year yeah so that people don't die of dehydration i don't know like the calculus of that decision seems super super obvious to me but for some reason it's not yeah to the public of this country and so that's why i mean our our interest in the water stuff we we do care that there's viable recreation economies happening around these lakes and these water resources because they just add on to the base need that they're providing for i mean we if we had to if we had to choose between having the recreation and the water we'd choose the water right i mean right everyone's like you just want to water ski and you don't well, you don't care about phoenix having water I'm like that's the exact opposite a full lake is better for phoenix it is it's better for california um, and if there's a plan that is built around keeping the lake more full, so you have a savings account or something you can draw on when there are crises, that's better, more rational, reasonable management than liquidating the whole system because we can't hold our, we can't hold back. We yeah. can't build conservation. We can't build restrictions. We can't build cutbacks into the system because We've over-allocated it. Like, it's hard. You're, John Wesley Powell's right. We're going to have to keep fighting over this in the near short future. But I don't think in the long run, if we would just be reasonable, I, we're a rich country. We're technologically advanced. Uh, you go stand on these dams and say, people like two generations before me built this and we're out building like trailhead kiosks. Is our infrastructure, is, our, is what we're leaving behind for our kids? And I, don't get me wrong, like I I love a good trailhead kiosk as much as anybody, but it doesn't hold a <laughs> candle to the Glen Canyon Dam. Yeah, as far as an engineering marvel is something that somebody had a lot of foresight and vision to build that and make sure that we could meet the needs of forty million people in the West. Yeah, yeah. You go 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 do a tour at uh, either the Glen Canyon Dam or the um, what's the one at uh, Lake Mead? That one's the Hoover. Uh, Hoover um, Dam. Yeah. Yeah. Go do a tour. Cause I've done tours at both of them. Um, and they, and then say, Hey, they were doing this, doing this in the sixties. So that means they weren't doing any of this with computers at all. They, it was people with like slide rules and they didn't even have calc. They, all this math was done by hand. You know, we're talking before the digital age and they figured out how to make these, these structures that are just mind boggling how big they are. Um, and it's, yeah. And they still look great. Here, what what do we? I six, think they 60, would 60 look at later? our culture and see our supercomputers and what we're able to do with material science and like create membranes and like engineer material at the molecular level. And they would say, "You guys can do all this, and you're not desalinating water." Yeah, 
Yeah. And your and waste product is a bunch of lithium that you guys can use to build all your batteries. Like what what are you waiting for? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. People are and I have an electric car. I bought I bought an electric car a couple of years ago to kind of see what the deal was, but it's like this whole talk about everything moving to electric as fast as they want it to. It's just like you can't move that fa- we can't build enough batteries. And even even if we could, where are we going to get the where are we going to get the, you know, the chemicals for these batteries? None of this is zero impact. So They're in seawater. Like there is a company that they, they, they're, it's one of these like prototype discoveries, right? They've found you can mine lithium out of seawater. And the byproduct of this mining technology is freshwater. (laughs) And you end up with lithium. And I mean, they have to figure out how to scale it, but you start seeing that all these ducks line up in a row and then you say, oh, well, we should go full blast at this and figure it out because this solves so many of our other big problems. And we saw, I mean, I, there was a, they wanted to build a desalination plant in California. They had the approval of the entire democratic legislature. They had Gavin Newsom signed off and the coastal commission went to go through their final meeting. They were the last agency that was going to approve it. And they had a bunch of protesters show up. They were dressed up in costumes like plankton and they derailed the plan. Wow. They killed the project. And so we're either going to be a country that's ruled by cosplay plankton people or scientists and engineers and rational policymakers that are looking at our real big problems and saying, here are some potential solutions. At some and point, I'm, cooler heads have to prevail and good ideas have to prevail. I mean, it's just, you know, the amount the amount of power that some of these environmentalist groups have and and I'm not saying that they're always wrong all the time, you know. But if we're wor- if we're worried about the plankton, you know, there's probably more plankton in on you know on this earth than there is anything else uh, in our oh, oceans. And I'm worried about the plankton. So was the company that was had the proposal. They were going to pipe the effluents out into the ocean, build a pipeline underwater, miles and miles out, so it would go out of some of the higher sensitive like eco regions near the coast, and so we are a mature enough country when it comes to our environmental responsibility that when we build projects like this, the companies do try to come forward with solutions to manage and mitigate environmental impacts. What they're running up against is zero sum. No, you cannot do it period. And And we have the lawyers and the money and the plankton costumes to stop you. (laughs) And do. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to google what a plankton costume looks like but uh, uh like a teletubby kind of <laughs> well ran into a <laughs> we we went we went down the rabbit hole on this one so hopefully all the dirt bikers are still listening uh but i do appreciate you coming on i think this is i think it's great to kind of talk about this type of stuff so we'll I'll post in the show notes about uh, these different links that you have on your website, uh, sharetrails.org. Um, if you're not a member of the Blue Ribbon Coalition, um, you should become one. Uh, this is something that I've been contributing to and been a member of. I'm not even sure how long. I just got my renewal notice in the mail or whatever, and it's it's been a, a hot minute. I think it was maybe 2015 or so. So it's been, I don't know, seven or eight years that I've been contributing to this. It doesn't cost a lot. Um, for those of you out there listening, I mean, the amount of money that you spend on registration for a race or whatever is, is about the same amount of money that it would take to become a, a member of blue ribbon coalition. And then if you want, you can, you can, you can donate even more. And, uh, 
this is one of these groups that I have been following for years, uh, Blue Ribbon Coalition, even, you know, the directors that were, that came before you, Ben, um, there's a lot of, uh, good stuff that you're doing across the nation. Um, and I don't know of a better place to kind of spend your money. If you don't know where to spend your money to kind of help, help us to, be some sort of a stopgap between all these environmental uh, environmentalist groups trying to take our public a- take access to our public lands. If you don't know what to, where to spend your money, this is the best place that I know of within Blue Ribbon Coalition. Become a member, donate. There's lots of good things that uh, Ben and his team are doing, and I just want to thank you for for uh, all the good work that you're doing, Ben. It's because uh, it, the, the regular people like m- you know me and everyone else that has all these other interests and all these all these other jobs, we cannot stay you know, ahead of all these issues and we can't even keep track of everything that's happening. And so it's nice to have organizations like you, uh, that are, you know, on, on the front lines of this stuff. So thank you for all of that. Yeah. Thanks for the support. I know every time you promote us on the show, we get a lot of new members. We hope that happens again. Uh, we love, and it, we do need the financial resources. We have a professional staff that's helped. That's how we're able to stay on top of all these things. And that's what keeps it going. And, uh, our side of these issues has, we have a lot of great volunteer organizations. They go out and do a lot of awesome projects like what you talked about, clearing the trails and doing things that keep our public lands well-managed and open. The other side has professionalized the advocacy and the litigation and all these other things that influence how this works a thousand times to one. We're one of the few groups that really is professionalizing that and having and engaging at the same level. And yeah. so we do need the financial support, but we want your voice. That's why t- we spent most of the time today talking about adding your voice to this process on the BLM rule. I know you don't want to do that. I, I, I was, I never wanted to take my outdoor recreation, which is my escape from everything and politicize it. It, it ruins it. It feels like, but you have to do it. I didn't, I'm sorry. I didn't start the fight, but I need you in it. Um, if we're going to, have a meaningful chance to win. And so I, I just appreciate being a guest on dirt bike channel. Your listeners are awesome. The dirt bike community is awesome. We'll keep fighting for you and uh, we'll come back anytime that there's a big issue that we need your attention. Yeah. And one other thing I would just say, like you're doing this because you're passionate about it. I'm sure there are many other avenues that uh, you could have, you could choose even now where you could probably make more money than, than, than what you're, what you're doing when we're talking about like these things. I mean, there's a lot of places I could make more money, but I love, I love being involved in motorcycles. I love being involved in, you know, the outdoors. And so this is where I am at right now. And I feel like you're probably in the same boat. You've had a lot of different, worn a lot of different hats and things. And I don't think that guys like you know, you and I, especially you, we're not in this for the money. We're in this because it's a good way to make a living and we can make a difference. It's not necessarily the way for us to, you know, create generational wealth for our families. Uh, but we're doing it because it's something that we're passionate about. And I think, I think you can relate to that. So. Yeah. I think these outdoor recreation experiences get passed down to generations probably more commonly than wealth does. And so it's worth fighting for that too. Okay. Well, Ben, I appreciate it. I will include all this stuff in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to mention about how they can get in, in contact with you or what you're doing or your team? I think we got it covered. Okay. Let's with the rule. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks so much, Ben. And uh, we'll check in with you later. All right. Thank you. All right, thanks.